Hello, I'm Scott Millis, senior pastor here at Living Word Family Church, and I'd like to welcome you to our podcast. We want to thank you for joining us today, and we hope that today's message encourages you and equips you in your walk with Christ. Here's today's message. But I do get excited when the Illinois teams are doing well, and I do typically tune in a little bit during the, you know, things like the Super Bowl and uh, uh, World Series, things like that, and certainly the NCAA tournament. And Illinois was doing well, right? And so I watched my first Illinois game, and it was yeah, the Loyola game. And I started to wonder, man, did I, did I jinx them? You know, I didn't watch them all year. They did well, and then I watched them, and they lost. So I tuned in at halftime to the ORU game last night. They were doing well at halftime. Then I started watching. So I don't know what kind of shape your bracket is in right now, but uh, if you want to talk to me about not watching a particular game, we can talk turkey after, after church, okay? Pay me to stay away. Good morning also to those of you watching at home or on the road or wherever you are. We look forward to having you back in our midst. Appreciate you tuning in. Glad for, that you're staying fed and everything, but there is no substitute for assembling together. So join us as soon as you can. We love you. We miss you. Uh, and I'm going to try to remember this at the end when we take up the offering, but this is normally Mission Sunday, first Sunday of the month. We are uh, not collecting a mission, mission offering today because... Reverend Dr. David Beebe will be joining us on April 18th and we'll be taking up a special offering for him. That will be our mission offer, offering for April. Might want to think about that between now and then. I don't know how many of you know or remember David Beebe. He is an outstanding minister, outstanding teacher. I know you will love him. So even if you haven't heard uh, uh, of him, be thinking about, praying about, setting some, something aside to be a blessing to him because... Uh, by the time he's done, you will want to be a blessing to him. He will, he will be a blessing to you, I promise. We are, have been in the midst, midst of a uh, series of messages on the basic doctrines of Christianity. And last week we looked at forgiveness with specific emphasis on forgiving others who sin against us. Um, you can go back and listen to that if you missed it, but one of the points that we made was that there is a difference between words like iniquity well, let's just say the difference, a difference between the word iniquity and words like trespasses or transgressions. Iniquity is sinfulness, and transgressions and trespasses are sinful acts. All three words can be translated sin. But when we talk about forgiving others, we are talking about forgiving sinful acts, uh, offenses, transgressions, trespasses. And our difficulty in forgiving others really stems from our sense of justice. And that sense of justice is not a bad thing. That's something that, it's a reflection of God. He is a just God, right? He is love. He is merciful. He is forgiving. He is kind. But he is also, God is, perfectly just. And we have inherited from him, we bear the image of our creator, and one of the ways we bear that image, I believe, is an inherent sense of justice. And it's not just that we have been hurt, but that our sense of justice is offended if we just let something go because somebody deserves something and they're not getting it. And uh, this is super important when we, when we look, as we did last week, at the parable of the master with the two servants. He had one servant that owed him 10,000 talents 
which depending on if it was silver or gold, remember, was worth either multiplied millions or uh, a few billion dollars. And the other one, the other servant had a, a fellow servant owed that servant 100 denarii, uh, which in the parlance of the day was, was no more than a few thousand dollars. And when they talk about sin and forgiveness, when Jesus talks about sin and forgiveness in that story, the, the clear picture here is that it is a debt. That's what he said. He said he didn't, ha- didn't say he had a, a servant who sinned against him. He had a servant who owed him a debt. And that servant had a fellow servant who owed him a debt. And the only way the master could forgive that debt was to what? Absorb that debt. He essentially paid that debt. In other words, he essentially gave that servant 10,000 talents. Didn't he? And in the face of that kind of generosity, we could see how the master was enraged that this servant could not, out of that 10,000 talents, essentially give his fellow servant 100 denarii. Now, the upshot of that message, remember, began with Jesus telling us that if we don't forgive one another from our heart, that God won't forgive us. And that's scary, but again, the, the, the central point of my message was that I don't believe he's talking about heaven and hell. It's about living with the consequences of your sin. You know, this sense of justice, we can take the quote-unquote high road and trust God and say, well, God is the one who will take vengeance. I'm going to let it go and trust God to deal with that person because God's the one who said, vengeance is mine, I will repay. Well, that's one level of trust, but I'd rather compare that to Jesus saying, forgive them they know not what they do. Or Stephen, as he is being stoned to death, he didn't cry out, Lord, you see what they're doing to me. I forgive them, but I want you to judge them. Take vengeance. Avenge me, Lord. What did he cry out? Lord, don't hold this sin to their account. I'm asking you to release them because I'm not holding this against them. That's the kind of forgiveness we should be aiming for, right? Now, we have, uh, the, and again, this is all talking about individual offenses, trespasses, transgressions, sins, like sinful acts against us. But there is a deeper and more serious problem with sin. The reason we sin, the reason we transgress, is because we are born in iniquity. Sin, as in iniquity, as in the sin nature, is a fatal disease. It is a blood-borne pathogen that we have all inherited from our first father, Adam. The symptoms of this disease are transgressions, trespasses, sinful acts. And we talk about this sin nature, original sin, as something that everybody has. And yet we all know people who may not even name the name of Christ, but who are nice people, they're good people. And we know Christians who are better Christians than other Christians, right? Don't we? Let me, let me rank you right now, just real quick. There's not that many. The best Christian, no. But this idea, this, not, this is truth from the Bible. We all have this. But uh, 
Think about COVID. Is COVID a terrible disease? I think it is. But it's worse than some people, isn't it? Some people get it and they die. Some people get it and they nearly die. Some people get it and they suffer for a long time. Some people get it and it's barely a cold. Some people get it and they are what? Asymptomatic. But they get it, don't they? Not everybody, but the people who get it, they get it. And there are, I, I guess that's kind of a weak analogy, but sin can be like that. We all have it. It might manifest itself in more dramatic ways in one person's life than it does in yours or somebody else's. But it's still there. And we all need a cure. We all need to be set free from the disease of original sin. The concept of original sin is absolutely fundamental to the understanding of the Christian message. And to deny it, this actually, the denial of original sin, the idea of original sin, is uh, fundamental to the understanding of the direction that mankind and society are taking right now. I mean, we have moved in a very short time. Now, we can go back before this. I'm just talking just in, in recent years, we've gone from uh, I'm not perfect, but no one's perfect. Uh, my sin is no worse than your sin, to how dare you call it sin. In fact, some people, I almost said we're on the precipice, but I think we're there in some cases, where there's no such thing as sin. Literally no such thing as good and evil. We could go down that path for a message or two, but this is Palm Sunday, and I'm, I'm trying to tie my message on forgiveness to the triumphal entry and to the trial of Jesus. So let's move on. My point here is that Jesus came not merely to deal with our transgressions, but to deal with our iniquity, to, our, uh, to deal with our sin nature. And to do that, he had to do that without violating God's perfect justice. God's justice had to be satisfied while our debt was paid. So, Jesus has been teaching, preaching, healing, doing miracles, casting out devils for three, three and a half years at this point. And the crowds love him, mostly. And the Jewish authorities opposed him, feared him, even hated him. And the burning question through all of this was, is this the Messiah? I feel sometimes like I've hammered this point a lot over the years, but it's super important, again, to understand this, that Jesus did not appear in a vacuum. It wasn't like the Jews, or the, the, the inhabitants of Judea during the Roman Empire, the first century Roman Empire, uh, were just living their lives, and then this guy Jesus showed up out of the blue with this whole new concept they had, that they had no idea, well, what's a Messiah? And here's Jesus claiming to be the Messiah and doing these things. No, they knew, what, knew that there was a Messiah. He was expected. They even expected him, some of them, about this time. The knowledgeable Jew, and there were many knowledgeable Jews, not just the scholars, knew that God had promised a Messiah, a deliverer, the anointed one, right, who would save his people. And they even knew the time frame, thanks largely to the prophecies of Daniel. There were people, and it always fascinates me to think about this, that there were people who were actively on the lookout for Messiah at the right time. But because, see, they were locked in a moment of time. They were under Roman rule. And when they considered salvation and deliverance, it was impossible for them to consider it outside the context of being freed from Roman rule, Roman power. 
when they pictured their deliverance, I almost to a person, what they were imagining was somehow when Messiah comes. And it had to have been exciting because they're thinking, well, the time frame is now, but Rome is powerful. So this is going to be super exciting. Whenever he does it, however he does it, what a time to be alive because what he's going to do is somehow in the midst of this, restore Israel to its position of power and glory like it enjoyed under King David and King Solomon. This is what they pictured. And that meant, probably, that the Messiah would have to be a great military man like David, who would be supernaturally empowered to overthrow Rome. There was a group, a, a subset of, you know, you had, you know, all Jews were not alike. You had your, your, your scholars, and you had your common man, and you had some who were, uh, uh, they had, they had their, you know, it's kind of like we have denominations in Christianity, and one group was the Zealots. And their whole mission was, we are going to overthrow Rome. And I'm sure that at this time they were like, we are the ones who are going to be with Messiah when he overthrows Rome. Uh, and by the way, at least one of Jesus' disciples was a zealot. He was part of that crowd. And uh, when Jesus, therefore, began uh, his, his ministry and began gaining a following and a reputation, you had the guys who were at the center of power. And I say guys literally because it was an all-male group. The ones who were the center of, I when I say center of power, I'm talking about in Jewish society. The Pharisees, the Sadducees, the Sanhedrin, the, 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 high, the, the, the chief priests and the scribes. They assumed that Jesus, when he showed up, well, sorry, when the Messiah showed up, that he would be one of them. They were the keepers of, they were the gatekeepers. They were the ones who kept Jewish society in line with the law, and therefore, who loved the law, who loved God more than they did, when Messiah showed up, they're going to be his A-team. And then he, again, he begins, he, he attracts a following, he attracts a reputation, and they noticed, and they were frustrated for a couple of reasons. They were frustrated because they could not deny his extraordinary wisdom. We see this recorded on more than one occasion. Where did this guy get this kind of wisdom? He didn't go to school where we went to school. How can he take us on? But he's taken us on. They certainly couldn't deny the miracles, especially since there were many, many supernatural healings. He healed multitudes. But the problem was he did things like that on the Sabbath. And they just knew that the Messiah would never do anything that would cause them to question whether it was legal uh, according to the Mosaic law. They didn't like that. They also didn't like that he hung out with all the wrong people. He was a friend of sinners. And it bothered many of them, certainly the zealots, that he wasn't talking about anything like overthrowing Rome. If this guy's here to deliver us, why is he spending all this time talking about other stuff. Let's get on with it. Where's the military? Where's the army you're supposed to be raising? And also, eventually, where, where the argument settled down and, and what really bothered the ruling class was this, that rather than claiming to be a servant of God or a prophet of God, he said he was the son of God. In fact, he said he was one with God. 
And because of that, and we see this several times in scriptures too, the leaders, the religious leaders, wanted to do away with him. They plotted to kill him. They even picked up stones to stone him. And he walked through their midst because it wasn't his time. And the more popular he got, the more difficult it became because they, they went from just being nervous about Jesus to being nervous about his followers. They knew how popular he was. And this all came to a head on what we now call Palm Sunday. And most of you know the story, but we'll read it out of Mark chapter 11, beginning in verse 1. It says, Now when they drew near Jerusalem to Bethphage and Bethany and the Mount of, Mount of Olives, he sent two of his disciples, and he said to them, Go into the village opposite you, and as soon as you have entered it, you will find a colt tied on which no one has sat. Loose it and bring it. And if anyone says to you, Why are you doing this? Say, the Lord has need of it, and immediately he will send it here. So they went on their way, and they found the colt tied by the door outside on the street, so they loosed it. But some of those who stood there said to them, What are you doing loosing the colt? And they spoke to them just as Jesus commanded, so they let them go. And they brought the colt to Jesus and threw their clothes on it, and he sat on it. And many spread their clothes on the road, and others cut down leafy branches from the street, sorry, from the trees and spread them on the road. Then those who went before and those who followed cried out saying hosanna blessed is he who comes in the name of the lord blessed is the kingdom of our father david that comes in the name of the lord hosanna in the highest now you remember the crowds by and large accepted jesus where they followed jesus and accepted him as a rabbi you know a teacher a prophet a miracle worker a healer but there was among them this constant question could this be the Messiah? And isn't that funny? This has been pointed out before that they were willing to accept him as a miracle worker, as a healer, but not ready to receive him as Messiah. And today we have millions of people who receive him as Messiah, but refuse to receive him as a miracle worker and a healer. It's not either or, is it, thank God? So when he entered Jerusalem, they went all in, as it were. The red carpet treatment. This is when we call it Palm Sunday. So they took, cut branches out of trees and threw them on the street in front of Jesus. They were, just, they were making this royal road for him. And some of those were you know, the palm branches. And uh, so this was their moment of saying, we believe. We believe that you are the Messiah. We're throwing in with you. Interesting that they said, blessed is he, sorry, blessed is the kingdom of our father, David. This was, again, this was their picture of the ultimate deliverer, the ultimate king, the ultimate uh, uh, savior would be another David, a David on steroids. But Hosanna, what does that mean, remember? Save now. Save now. We're on your side. We believe you. You are the one. Do it or prove it, maybe. Now, this is the first of two prayers. I keep doing this on purpose. This is the first of two prayers I want to talk about this morning. You and I know where he was going, what he was doing. Jesus knew it. He told his disciples several times why he was going to Jerusalem and what was going to happen when he got there. And yet, they still didn't know it. And the people surely didn't know it. But we know, looking back through time, reading the scriptures, we know why he was heading there. He was going in a week's time to the cross, to his death. Why? He was going there to answer that prayer. 
save now. He was the only one at that moment that understood the mortal danger his people and all of us, all people, were in. Then that danger was not that they were under the thumb of godless Roman rule. The true enemy was their own sin nature. Because of that, they were under the power of Satan, a much worse enemy than Rome. And that because of that, they were subject to the curse of sin. They were subject to poverty, sickness, and ultimately death. They were crying out, save now, meaning save us from Rome. But when they cried out, save now, Jesus was saying, on my way. I'm on my way to do just that. But from their perspective, fast forwarding a week, he failed. He failed to, uh, you know, just by being arrested, he failed. Oh, he's coming, this is it, here he is, saved now. And then what, he gets, he gets arrested like a common thief? This wouldn't happen to the Messiah. So they're frustrated, they're angry, they're disappointed. He failed in his trial by the Jewish authorities. I had big quotation marks there because it was a sham trial. He failed to prevail over Pilate. And finally, ultimately, failed in his crucifixion. Because no way the Messiah would die. There might have been a few hangers-on at that moment thinking, wow, he's been through a lot. Uh, I can't believe it's not him because he did this, he did this, he did this. I'm so familiar with his ministry. I can't believe he's been arrested. I can't believe uh, he was beaten. And now they're actually taking him to carry out this this crucifixion. It can't happen. What's he going to do at the last minute? Is he going to break free and then kapow? I don't think there were too many in in that mindset at that moment. The vast majority had given up. But remember, he had already said, I could call you know, innumerable angels, legions of angels, call my father, and he would send legions of angels to set me free. Maybe they thought, maybe he's going to do it. He's just going to wait till the last minute. But I don't think many of them thought that. So, even though he was on his way to answer the cry of save now, what he received was their scorn rather than their gratitude. He had to go to the cross to save them. He had to go to the cross to save us. But because they didn't know the real enemy, they couldn't recognize his real victory. And we'll come back to that in a minute. Because Jesus, it was still a week before he was going to be crucified, and he didn't just cool his heels. He continued to teach. He prophesied. He shared parables. He cleansed the temple. He cursed the fig tree. He ate the Passover meal with his disciples. Then he was betrayed and delivered to the Sanhedrin, the ruling council. Now, I'm not going to go into the illegalities surrounding this sham of a trial, but it was conducted in all the wrong ways, at the wrong time, with false witnesses. Uh, And at this point, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the rulers in general, just wanted an excuse to get rid of him. And the climax of this trial is in Matthew chapter 26. We begin reading in verse 62. And the high priest arose and said to him, Do you answer nothing? What is it these men testify against you? But Jesus kept silent. And the high priest answered and said to him, I put you under oath by the living God. Tell us if you are the Christ, the Son of God. Jesus said to him, It is as you said. 
Nevertheless, I say to you, hereafter you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of power and coming on the clouds of heaven. Then the high priest tore his clothes, saying, He has spoken blasphemy. What further proof do we need? Uh, sorry, what further need do we have of witnesses? Look, now you have heard his blasphemy. What do you think? And they answered and said, He is deserving of death. They finally got to the conclusion they were looking for. They just needed an excuse to do it. And they spat in his face and beat him. And others struck him with the palms of their hands, saying, Prophesy to us, Christ. Who is the one who struck you? Well, they got pretty bold in a hurry, didn't they? Then we fast forward to his appearance before Pilate. Pilate, of course, was the Roman governor of Judea. And this really is, this conversation, this confrontation really is worth reading in all four Gospels. I'm not going to do it today, but you do it when you get home, maybe. But essentially, most of you remember this, Pilate is arguing for Jesus to be released, right? What's he say? I find no fault with this man. They bring Jesus to him saying, we need you to kill this guy, and uh, He's like, for what? Well, their first response was the honest response, or at least the more honest response. They wanted him dead, would have been, well, because we just don't like him. He's a threat to us. That would have been the honest response. But what they said was, he blasphemed. He claimed to be God. And Pilate essentially says, that's not a violation of Roman law. Sounds like a local problem. Why don't you deal with him according? In fact, let's read this. That's not, he said, what, what, whatever he did that offended the Jews wasn't a capital offense in Rome, right? So in uh, John, again, uh, Gospel of John, chapter 18, beginning in verse 29, Pilate then went out to them and said, what accusation do you bring against this man? They answered him, I love this answer. <laughs> they answered him and said to him, if he were not an evildoer, we would not have delivered him up to you. Just the fact that we brought him to you means he's, what are you getting all these details for, right? 31, Verse 31, Pilate said to them, you take him and judge him according to your law. Since it's your law he's violated, not mine, you deal with him. And what's their response? Therefore the Jews said to him, it is not lawful for us to put anyone to death. Now according to their law, or their interpretation of their law, what Jesus said was worthy of death. Meaning they would have to stone him because the Jews didn't crucify, they stoned people. But they said, it's not legal for us to do that. We're good Roman citizens, and we don't want to, you know, you're, you know, only Rome can administer capital punishment. So yeah, he's deserving of death, but we can't do it. Now, there have been arguments over the years of, uh, it's, and they're silly arguments, theologically speaking, but they've been responsible for a lot of hatred, a lot of anti-Semitism over the years. Who's responsible for killing Jesus? Because people say, well, the Jews did it. Jews are the ones that delivered him unto Pilate. Jews were the ones that wanted him dead. And, this, and so for some reason, people hated the Jews or used this as an excuse for their hatred of the Jews, which was preexistent. They killed Christ. Christ killers. You've heard that phrase. It's an ugly, ugly thing. And the Jews sometimes would respond, we didn't do it, the Romans did. If we killed him, we would have stoned him. He was crucified. That was a Roman crucifixion. Now, 
Now we can look at it in Scripture and say the Jews were the ones that wanted him dead. They just wanted Rome to do the dirty work. But what about this claim they just made? It's not lawful for us to put anyone to death. Is that true? Did they have the right to administer capital punishment in their little sub-society? I don't know, but uh, I see a couple things in Scripture. One we already mentioned. They, at one point, they took up stones to stone Jesus. They were ready to do it right then. What about the woman caught in adultery? They were getting ready to stone her, right, when Jesus rescued her. What about Stephen, who was stoned to death? This was still under Roman rule. And so there have been some, a lot of hand-wringing and explanations for this. Some say, well, it kind of depended as uh, in-between governors. Sometimes there was a little lawlessness. Sometimes the laws changed depending on who was governor in Judea. But the bottom line is really pretty simple. I think Rome was just like, whatever these subhuman clowns want to do, let them do it as long as it doesn't interfere with Roman society at large. You know what? As long as you're not rising up against our government, as long as you're paying your taxes, they want to kill each other now and then, let them. If it turns into a full-scale rebellion, then we got a problem. If it really disrupts society, but if it keeps them happy to stone one another for their sins and violations of their silly little laws, let them do it. This was Rome's M.O. They didn't come and transform every society that they conquered into a Roman society. They let them keep their laws, not just Judea, but it's just like, as long as you understand we're in charge, we'll let you continue to play your little games. But here's a detail that Matthew records in chapter 27, the Gospel of Matthew, beginning in verse 22. Pilate said to them, what then shall I do with Jesus, who is called Christ? They all said to him, let him be crucified. Then the governor said, why, what evil has he done? But they cried out all the more, saying, let him be crucified. When Pilate saw that he could not prevail at all, but rather that a tumult was rising, he took water and washed his hands before the multitude, saying, I am innocent of the blood of this just person. You see to it. Actually, that to it there is in uh, italics, and it probably shouldn't be there. It probably just should say, you see, my hands are clean. You see. I am innocent of the blood of this just person. You see to it. And all the people answered and said, His blood be on us and on our children. I know this was not a prayer, but once again, Jesus was going to answer it as a prayer. Because ultimately, the Romans didn't kill Jesus. The Jews didn't kill Jesus. What did Jesus say about who killed Jesus? In John chapter 10, verse 17, he says, Therefore my Father loves me because I lay down my life that I may take it again. No one takes it from me. Not the Jews, not the Romans, not Pilate, not Herod. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of myself. I have power to lay it down, and I have power to take it again. This command I've received from my Father. And in John chapter 19, beginning in verse 10, he says, or we read this, that Pilate said to him, are you not speaking to me? Do you not know that I have power to crucify you and power to release you? Jesus answered, you could have no power at all against me unless it had been given to you from above. Who killed Jesus? If anybody killed Jesus, I killed Jesus. 
But the fact is, he laid down his life. He had to do that. When I say I killed Jesus, it's because the only way he could save me was to die. And by the way, you too. Not taking all the credit. All the blame, right? All of this was for what? When he talked about laying down his life, the power that had been given to Pilate just so he could be crucified was for what? It was for the forgiveness of sin, iniquity, the sin nature. We had a sin debt that God determined before the foundation of the world to forgive. All right? But this is the key. Because God is perfectly just, he couldn't deal with it by saying, forget it. Justice demanded that the debt be paid. You know, we see this demonstrated early on, back in the garden, right after the fall of man, when Adam and Eve tried to cover their nakedness by sewing fig leaves together. And then God, what did he do after he confronted them? He killed an animal and gave its skin to them as clothing. What was the statement there? That signified that innocent blood had to be shed to cover sin. The people that were shouting at Pilate made it clear that they were out for blood. Their bloodlust was misguided. They wanted Jesus dead because they hated him, but their hate was misguided. That was murder that was in their hearts. But the death of Jesus and the blood of Jesus was exactly what they needed just for reasons they didn't understand. In, it, think about that. They were crying for his death, crying for his blood, and it was his death and his blood that was going to save them, but that's not why they were crying for it. God placed the iniquity, the iniquity, the sin nature of all of us on Jesus. And what did he do? Well, Jesus was on the cross. He poured out his divine judgment on him. That judgment was supposed to fall on me, was supposed to fall on you. God, because only God could, and Jesus had to be innocent, had to be perfect, and had to be God. Remember, let me explain quickly why. If I'm guilty, the only guilt I can die for is mine. No matter how much I love you, I can't die for your sin because I got enough of my sin to die for. So I have to be innocent to die in your place. I'm not innocent. Only Jesus was innocent enough to do that. If Jesus were only a man, he could only die for one person. Life for life. But Jesus was God. Jesus is greater than the sum total of all creation. Therefore, he could stand in for all creation. He was innocent. He was perfect. He was God. Therefore, he could be the substitute for all of us. So when, he, so when God put my sin, he put your sin, Jesus was the only one big enough to carry all of our sin to the cross. And then the, the judgment that our sin invites was judged at the cross. Therefore, we are not under condemnation. Why? Because God says, let's just don't even think about that sin. No, because God judged that sin already. He paid the debt. 
he suffered that punishment, died my death, also God could look at my sin debt, look at the blood, and say, paid in full. That really, despite other, other suggestions on what it means, that really is the best interpretation of what Jesus meant when he said, it is finished. It is finished is what they wrote on a contract or an invoice to indicate the debt was paid. Thanks again for listening. To hear more messages like this one, make sure to subscribe and check out our podcast channel for past episodes. And if you enjoyed today's message, consider sharing it with a friend. For more content and information about Living Word, check out our website at livingwordfamily.org. And remember to live the gospel and preach the gospel.